Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, friends, and welcome to a new episode <laughs> of Your Own Personal Beatles. Uh, I am, as ever, Jack Pelling. And I'm Robin Allender. How are you doing, mate? Yeah, really good. This is we've got a great episode lined up for you. Yeah, it's uh, it's a very hot day, mm. uh, and we've got an episode we recorded on a very cold day because I think we did this as far back as maybe even February. Yeah, uh, when you listen to this, you'll there's a lot of talk of the Adam Buxton Paul McCartney interview and McCartney three, so it was definitely. You know, fairly soon after that, wasn't it? Early in the yeah, year. Yeah. So mm. this is Jeff, Jeff Lloyd in the depths of uh, the second lockdown. Yeah. Or was it the third lockdown? I don't know. So what, whichever on ones. Which, you, which one you count? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it was a really, really fantastic um, chat. Jeff Lloyd is a, a brilliant broadcaster and uh, writer, and you might know him from his work on the radio. And he uh, does a few brilliant podcasts. One uh, this year called Beetlejuice, which is the companion podcast to a show he does on Union Jack Radio, which is a really joyous sort of Beatle-themed Sunday morning show, uh, which is hopefully coming back. But, um, yeah, his podcast that he did with his wife, Sarah Barron, is really brilliant too. Um, and he does a fantastic podcast with Ed Miliband as well called Reasons to be Cheerful. Um, so we were great, very grateful for him to uh, give up a bit of his time. Didn't sound like he need to be, needed to be too coerced to talk yeah. about the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, he said, I mean, he says that his mind is basically constantly ticking away with Beatles' thoughts anyway. Yeah. So you just, ta- you just, you know, pull, you just draw the tap and, and, you know, have a bath in it. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd say he's probably our most uh, knowledgeable Beatles guest so far by, by quite some way. Possibly, but he's, um, I mean, he wears, the lean, he wears his learning very lightly, though. He's just, it's the enthusiasm I really like. He does know a, a great deal of these kind of niche facts and he's able to pull up these stories, but he's, he's just, he just loves chatting about it as well. Yeah, and, and it's so sort of passionate and uh, infectious enthusiasm. Mm. Uh, it's really, really great. Yeah, when listening back to it, I realised I just started reading Tune In mm. at the beginning, which we, we talked about a lot because um, it's the basis of a lot of the conversations about, uh, you know, the re- the relationship between the four and how it's all there in, that, uh, in those formative years. And uh, I've just got to, uh, after however many months... Um, They've basically just released "Please Please Me." All <laughs> oh, right. So that's how long this, and it's I'm on page seven hundred. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't it? So, um, doesn't the book end with the release of "Love Me Do"? Or is um, it... Sorry, I didn't mean "Please Please Me." I meant "Love Me Do." Right. Um, yeah. You no. It's, fucking well, idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've got one of our one-star uh, um, iTunes reviews is uh, someone getting angry that we, I got those two confused another time. So please don't do that. Um, uh, but yeah, 700 pages until sort of Ringo joins the band. So it's pretty forensic. But yeah. absolutely, it took me a long time to get into it. Um, and until Hamburg, I'd 
must admit, I did find it a little bit of a slog, mm. but now I'm absolutely cool. obsessed with it and dreading it ending because oh, wow. it might, well, you know, who knows how long it will be till the next one. But uh, there's yeah, some lovely should... stories in it, aren't there? I love that one about when they would finish writing a Lennon McCartney composition, they would have a smoke on Paul's dad's pipe using loose yeah. leaf tea. <laughs> so disgusting. But just yeah. to be kind of grown up. I love that. But there's so much, you know, it's, it, if you uh, really want to take a deep dive, it's up there with the sort of, you know, team of rivals and, uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln biography. It's sort of that comprehensive um, with another 2,000 pages to go. So I highly recommend it for the uh, for the hardcore. Mm. But, uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll crack on with this uh, episode. Actually, you had something to you've brought along to show the boys and girls. Yeah, well, this is kind of in the podcast later. I sort of make this kind of like... Probably one of the most boring things I've ever said, but I'd be very interested to to read a book about how the Beatles learnt chords. You know, mm. like, where did those specific things come from? I think that came from... I'm very interested in the idea of, like, what are they doing consciously and what are they doing unconsciously? Mm. There's a really good book about Shakespeare called Shakespeare's Brain, which is mm-hmm. basically about what was seeping into Shakespeare's writing unconsciously. Like, how did his brain actually work? And I think that's the kind of... That, I think that's what I'm trying to to get at. You know, I'd mentioned an interview where Paul's asked about Blackbird and whether he was listening and tuning into all the folk stuff. Mm-hmm. And I found the interview. It's, it's from... Um, it's from Mojo when the, on, on the anniversary of the White Album, I think. Um, so he says Blackbird, you know, we, we, there's a great video of him where he's talking about the inspiration from Bach. The interviewer says, have, had, had he been to any of the folk clubs like the Troubadour? And he says, no, I hadn't done any of that. My main influence would have been Bob Dylan in the folky thing and traditional British folk music, but I was not a big fan. It was whatever happened along my way. But I did like the finger-picking style and it was one of those things I'd always meant to learn. I know Gypsy Dave... David Mills, a musician buddy of Donovan in the 60s. I think he or a mate of his might have taught Donovan the rudiments. Neither John nor I could play that way, but John learned off somebody, Donovan, according to his recollection, and it resulted in Julia, one of my favourite John tracks. I did my own version of finger-picking, which is a bit of a bodge, but it resulted in Blackbird. And I love that because, A, he's describing Blackbird as a bit of a a bodge. (laughs) But the amazing thing about that, is the way he's downplaying it so much. And also, it still doesn't account for the magic of Blackbird and Julia. Because mm. even having that experience in India and learning some rudiments from Donovan, like, I mean, I've been playing the guitar for like 20 years and I still can't play Julia right. So it's like, yeah. how... I, I, that's the thing that I'm really interested in, in, which is, so now I'm going to quote from <laughs> the Ian Penman article, which was in... The London Review of Books early this mm. year, which is yeah. absolutely brilliant. Well worth uh, a read. Yeah, where he just it starts one paragraph with saying, "None of this quite explains the tonal and lyrical range soon evinced by the Beatles," and that's the thing. I think that gets to the core of the the magic of what mm. I'm talking about. Is despite knowing all this stuff and knowing these influences, none of it quite explains the magic that comes from yeah. it. You know, and so that's for me why I'm just endlessly fascinated by the India period of Julia and Blackbird and what was going on for them to learn that stuff because it became greater mm. than the sum of its parts. It is crazy. I mean, that's, yeah, that's a really good point about Julia as well because it's sort of, I've been playing guitar probably the same time as you and that 
sort of F9 thing mm. is still a massive struggle. Yeah. 20, I'm, I've literally been playing that song for 20 yeah. years. Uh, I mean, I think Lennon just had incredibly strong fingers. And also, he when you listen to the there's a nice anthology outtake where he fluffs it and, and stuff, which is quite nice to hear. Yeah, well, that's good to know. <laughs> yeah, but it's that it's still like there's still but they're just ma- magic tools, going like, on, you yeah, know, because exactly. it's like <laughs> they're just like a little new color that they've you know picked up along the way. But the, right. the paintings are still you know incredible. Yeah, yeah. It's just a new little another little weapon in the arsenal. But mm. is all of that well worth uh, investigating? Yeah, um, so I'm talking my arse off here. It's a bit yeah, much, isn't it? That's all right. <laughs> if you would, uh, God forbid, want an extended version of this podcast, um, you can get... Uh, this is actually a particularly long one because we were having such a great time, especially towards the end. Yeah. So um, you'll probably get another sort of 20 minutes to maybe even half an hour out of this one if you want to join our Patreon, which mm. you can do by going to patreon.com. Is it Patreon or Patreon? I don't think it matters, does it? Patreon, doesn't matter, does Patreon. it? As long as you pay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, patreon.com slash personal Beatles. Um, and then we'll also give you a monthly bonus podcast, which, yeah. first of which will uh, be arriving next week. Should, should, should be fun. Cool, yeah. Um, and, yeah, if you enjoy the show, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. That's really helpful for other people finding it and all that jazz. But um, for now, please enjoy our conversation with the wonderful Jeff Lloyd. So what was the first conscious Beatles exposure then? I, I, um, I was born in 73, and I think for anybody born around that time, Beatles is... It's almost like nursery rhymes in, in a way. It doesn't. The, the, some of those songs don't feel like they came out of people. They just feel mm. like they're in in the in the culture in the way that something like "Here We Go Round the Mulberry Bush" or "My Grandfather's Clock Is." And we used to have <laughs> a man who came into school and played piano, and we'd sing "When I'm 64." And I don't think I had any idea really that was anything to do with the Beatles. And again, with things like Radio One and and what little local radio we had back then, they would sort of play everything, the, the contemporary stuff. Mm. And, and you'd always hear Beatles songs like She Loves You or I Want to Hold Your Hand. Um, and, and that was kind of it for me, me and the Beatles. Paul McCartney was somebody I was aware of because I'd seen him on Saturday morning TV when he got a re- record to promote and had this association with him and the Frog Chorus. And, you know, again, was a, when I was a teenager, George Harrison, you know, came back with Cloud Nine and I was very aware mm. of that from being a teenager and watching the chart show. And there was a show called No Limits, which was produced by Jonathan King. Um, I remember seeing the video to... Yeah, I got my mind set on you on that for the first time. So, and I, I knew somehow that they had been Beatles, but, you know, whatever that thing that a lot of people have of having grown up with them and having sort of awareness of of them and you know the icons that they were i didn't really have that um and then when i started working at my first radio station my boss said one day have you heard this and he'd just got a cd reissue of plastic ono band and i said i haven't he said oh you want to take it into a studio and listen to it and i took it into a tiny little booth and and put it on really loud and i was so taken with it i think i sat in there and listened to it five six times over and over again um and that was the the start of it as an obsession for me um 
you know that that honesty that is in that album because the primal therapy mm. I, I just loved it and from that point i thought okay every week when i get paid i'm gonna go and buy a beatles album so yeah. i think i started with sergeant pepper and then you know worked my way outwards you know like a fan either side well, I mean, was it? The, I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? Because that kind of primal, the raw, rawness of that album is not necessarily something you find when you look back through the Beatles stuff. So, what were you trying to kind of capture that thing? How did you know? How what was the journey back like as you tried to kind of find that moment? Well, it's again, funny because well. you know I went from there to Sergeant Pepper, which yeah. is you know very. Uh, Technicolor and and very much the opposite of that mm. album and then then I just loved Sergeant Pepper in <laughs> I guess a day in the life there's a through line um, to John's bits of that but mm. I I just loved everything about I mean I felt like a sponge at that time everything that I could listen to or start to find out felt exciting to me. Mm. I guess as I've got older, I've made friends with the earlier stuff much more than, you know, I really, really love the first four albums in a way mm. that I didn't, I think, when I started buying them up. It was kind of from help onwards that I loved. But, um, yeah, just it, it was like being a sponge. And I think there's this amazing thing about being a Beatles fan where... Firstly, the the you know it's a it's a peerless body of music. There there is no greater catalogue of recorded music than what the Beatles made for us. But then the the story and what it is to be a fan and what that gives to you as well is so rewarding. Mm. And that's almost you know yeah you know, people say like the Beatles are full of all these happy accidents these yeah. odd coincidences and these chain reactions that they set off one of the greatest ones is what they give to you as a fan and the world it opens up and what uh yeah. you know what an incredible story it is but the the cast of characters and the yeah. facts i think if you're obsessive about anything it, that will open up but i th i think the the richness of the world of the beatles is just a glorious thing to be a fan of. Mm. I think that's the thing. Like you get, you go through this phase of getting all the studio albums, and then there's the kind of like lifting up the rock and seeing everything underneath. When you get into the backstory and the books about them, and the you know the bootlegs and anthology, and there's all that other stuff. And like you say, the cast of characters and everything. And usually, Plastic Ono Band comes towards the end of that discovery as well. So it's interesting to sort of reverse into it from yeah, it was yeah. a fun, funny way around to do it. Yeah, was there any particular song on Plastic Ono Band that hit you? Um, yeah, I think I just loved it all. I loved God, Mother, Isolation. I mean, I, I'm just going to sit here and and yeah. say song titles until we tick off everything from the track listing. <laughs> I, I, there wasn't anything. I mean, my, my mummy's dead, maybe, but the, there wasn't anything that didn't. You know, grip me in some way or other, and that that honesty. And I know you guys have talked about this before. That that really, for for a young person, John Lennon uh, is is often the way into the Beatles be, because of because mm. of that, because of what a force of nature and somebody who sought out the truth in himself and in the world. How attractive that is to you as uh, as a teenager or a 
young person. Perhaps it was it was that that mm. I was responding to. We listened to you on the um, Egg Pod, the brilliant Beatles podcast, and uh... yeah, Chris is great, isn't he? Yeah, <laughs> took a very deep dive into anthology too. Um, but I, re- I mean, we talk- I just really liked what you were talking about with yesterday, and I suppose McCartney's character, as opposed to what we were talking about with Lennon, where there's something kind of always a bit ob- obfuscating about McCartney. I just, I don't know. I wondered what, what you, what how you kind of grew to love McCartney, or how 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 that worked after being introduced by Lennon and everything. I think at first, like a lot of people, I, I hadn't clicked that the person singing the song had written the song. And yeah. even I remember it, uh, you know, very early on, just distinguishing the voices mm. was difficult to me, which they, they're such... I mean, one of the amazing things about the Beatles is that you have... I mean, two of the greatest instruments in rock mm. and roll are, are Paul McCartney's voice and John Lennon's voice. And the fact that they coexist in a band is incredible and of course George's voice is great as well mm. and the, the way it blends with their voices is, is, is so special so unpicking what was Paul and, and what was John wasn't something I'd, I even thought about very much to begin with and mm. did you see that that piece that went viral on Twitter a few maybe a couple of months ago yeah uh, which was in some ways a love letter to Paul I think it was written by Ian Leslie Yes, yeah. Um, Does that sound right? Yeah, it was just before three came out, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Um, yes, it was kind of about seventy things about him. Oh yeah, yeah, that was so great. Yeah. yeah, and and there was this line about how in this country we can sometimes treat him not as if he is one of the greatest artists or, or part of the greatest contribution to twentieth century culture that this country had to offer but we can treat him like some cheesy guy who used to host a, a game show and <laughs> I, I do think you know at the time there was a little bit of that perception of Paul which was so mm. unfair really and yeah I don't know if you've seen I, I forget her name there's a historian who has written a book and she's on a couple of Beatles podcasts about the the Beatles story from a histori- historian's point of view and about actually how the the John Lennon narrative of him as genius and Paul as saccharin, which was really established mm. in those early 70s interviews that John did, became the received mm. wisdom, you know, through Philip Norman's shout yeah. to some extent and the uh, Albert Golden book. And it was only when we ended up with a um, historian as as forensic and... Uh, as as committed to telling the 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 story more accurately as as Mark Lewis and it's that that narrative shifted. So I think when I started listening to the Beatles, there was still a little bit of a hangover of that perception of Paul. But yeah, you listen to the records, yeah. and there's just nothing in the the records that backs that up. And actually, the more you know the story, exactly, yeah, and, and especially you know, it's so surprising to me that. The type of person who writes him off is generally the type of person who writes off anything the Beatles did before they stopped touring. So in other words, the sort of people who will say, yeah, well, they were just a, a boy band to begin with and then then they got good. And when they, mm-hmm. they talk about then they got good, most of what they're talking about was was driven by... Paul's love for that band and his ambition yeah. to 
open the the band up to different ways of working and and you know always do it differently to the last thing that they did and mm. I, I i just think he's he's f- phenomenal i i love him um and i i'm i'm fascinated by him as an in- individual as well i think to have mm. lived the life he has lived and still put such a priority on being normal and being nice is is without precedent now i'm not mm. saying that paul mccartney is just a normal man because that is impossible but the fact that his values are such that that has remained important to him and mm. it's something he comes back to it's just phenomenal i'm fascinated yeah. by the fact that you've got these four guys from similar ish backgrounds you know paul and george definitely ringo a bit poorer john a bit posher but similar backgrounds and the the ways in which they handled the fame and you know what their lives look like in a, a certain sense it's it's really interesting they they're all from similar backgrounds they experience this same thing and yet how mm. it affected them is so different and and i think you know when you when you dig into that there is something about the values that were instilled in paul by his family and the importance to him of holding on to those values that's just incredibly impressive i find it insane that you know george harrison made some money and, and moved into a castle and <laughs> yeah. you know, john lennon made some money and moved into a you know tittenhurst but also out in the in the suburbs and, and ringo as well very stereotypically what rock stars from that background do when they get a bit of money yeah. and yet paul was not mm. just content to stay in his girlfriend's parents spare room but if you look at the life he has led and continues to lead to this day yes he lives in some of the and, and has houses in some of the most spectacular locations in the world but he he lives pretty modestly he doesn't live in a big country pile what does that say about him what does that say about his need to to stay grounded that he 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 lives in the context of a pretty much a billionaire in in quite modest yeah. surroundings it's fascinating <laughs> to me it's an interest almost an interesting sort of social experiment that you had do have those four very similar people yes. and just see how much they yeah yeah you know how differently they choose to, i think they all kind of ended up where they wanted to be yeah and where they ended up kind of without the sort of element of tragedy. Yeah. But yeah, Paul is just definitely, he is he is the one that you kind of relate with. And he's been so relentlessly nice. And being nice is something that comes in and out of fashion. And I think hopefully mm. we're sort of over the hump of the kind of anti-Macca sort of tabloidy, you know, game show figurey. I think... Mm. I hope we're on the home straight yeah. of now of people's just starting to appreciate. I think so. Exactly how incredible it is that someone like that is a still with us, and b sort of reassess the, you know, the damage that was done from the fallout with from yeah. the early seventies, and then also, you know, after Lennon getting sort of martyred by <laughs> for music fans. You know, Paul paid the price for that as well. And I don't think he's an uncomplicated... I don't think he's an uncomplicated character at all. Mm. Um, And I don't think what we see of Paul is in any way 
phony, but I also think that he, at quite a young age, and he tells us a story which is an interesting one which you've probably heard him tell a dozen times because he wheels it out in interviews with some frequency <laughs> but uh, uh, he, he tells this story about i think going on holiday to greece and it being the only place the beatles haven't sold any records so i think him and ringo would go there first couple of years and enjoy some anonymity and that was his bolt hole and then he goes back one year and they're, they're number one and everybody's making a fuss of him. And, and he, he talks about, and I don't know how true it is, making a conscious decision at that point. He thinks, well, either I step back for it, from it and there is some semblance of a, a normal life at some point in the future, or I just accept that it's it's a good thing. The the pros outweigh the cons and just try and and live that life and enjoy it and I, th I think that's an oversimplification because I think also in that there is there was this decision to hold a lot of himself back for himself mm. and I think the Paul that his friends or his, his family know or people who work with him to some extent it's it's a much fuller and more complicated for, for better and for worse character than than what we know as the public but um it's really remarkable how to him that the part of him that he doesn't hold back has had this priority on on, on being nice and being reasonable and having these values uh around what constitutes a normal life i think it speaks incredibly well of him um i think but I think he's a much more three-dimensional figure than that. But I really respect the choice he has made to hold the, the other dimensions back for himself. I think it's helped him, helped him keep his sanity. ask you about is um because what the when we you were first suggested that we get you on we were i would have to say quite intimidated by your unbelievable beetle knowledge because robin and i often feel like frauds on this uh, <laughs> on this podcast because there are always people with like better sort of knowledge than you but, but as someone who has you know the beatles incorporated into your sort of professional life um in the radio show that you do and stuff and we found it a little bit in the first series is how do you get rid of sort of beetle fatigue because we find that i've had this in my sort of normal life before we started doing this where i'd have kind of phases of getting in and into the beetles and then i wouldn't listen to them for quite a long time but how do you sort of do you ever have phases where the, the gun sort of loses its taste and you have to have a bit of time off I feel that it's such a rich body of work, and then especially if you kind of add the the solo work onto it, that there's there's always something. I mean, it's not what I put on every time I, I look through my phone and think, "What well, am I going to beam to the Sonos system?" But um, <laughs> I, I don't think a week goes by without me, you know, putting on an album or or a song or. or a, 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 you know, at some point, and I've got a four and a half year old son, so I'm desperately trying to indoctrinate him <laughs> yeah. as well. You know, which you know you you've got to do carefully. Although my wife, um, I was up here in the attic doing something the other day, and Sarah came up and she said, "Is Paul McCartney left-handed?" I said, "Yeah," and she said, 
I was just talking to Eugene, who's our son, and uh, I'd mentioned something about uh, not holding his pen in his left hand because he's right-handed. He goes, no, I'm left-handed like Paul. And, <laughs> yeah, I, I am imposing not only the music, but also the trivia to the extent my four-and-a-half-year-old son knows that Paul McCartney is left-handed. Yeah. And so we'll have to talk about what was it like? I mean, you've interviewed Paul several times I mean, do, do you remember the first time you did and how that felt? And, you know, without, I, I suppose, how was it meeting him and kind of without collapsing? <laughs> yeah, no, no, I know, I know. Well, prior to that, I remember when I lived in Manchester and I w- so had this job on the Mrs. Merton show as, as a runner, but also had friends who worked for Granada TV. So we would quite often just go and hang out at TV recordings so we could go in the green room afterwards and get free booze. And I remember going to, I think it was an episode of That Show Business with Mike Smith, um, <laughs> which was a TV panel show quiz. But it may it may have also been, um, you know, my memories of the 90s are a little... Uh, a little unclear due to my poor relationship with alcohol at the time, but it might have also been um, uh, Noddy Holder's This Is Your Life recording. I remember going to (laughs) one of those two shows and Mike McCartney, uh, as in Mike McGear, Paul's Mm. brother, was there and getting to talk to him and just feeling when I went home that night, oh my God, I've just spoken to a Beatles brother. That That is it now. I've got close to a Beatle. Um, I, I, I played it cool and didn't ask questions uh, about Paul, much as I would have liked to. Um, but that that felt like, okay, well, that was my thing at coming close to a Beatle. And then, you know, a couple of years after that, I think I interviewed Sean Lennon um, f- when he had an album out when I was on local radio. And, you know, if anything, that felt even more exciting he told me an interesting thing he, and I, th- I think at the time you know he was a young man and he was obviously wrangling with some difficult stuff but he told me in this interview that he used to carry a medal in his pocket and that if somebody came up to him and said oh i, I really loved your dad's music he'd get this medal out and say oh do you want a medal then do you you know, <laughs> it seems very harsh, the, you know, the antithesis yeah. of how Paul yeah. would handle a fan. And, and yet at the mm. same time, you know, obviously as life has been very difficult for the obvious reason. Um, mm. But but then so, so it didn't occur to me really that I'd get any closer to a Beatle than that. And then when I started at Virgin Radio in London, this was 99, and Paul had done an album of rock and roll covers it was as he was grieving for Linda and the the story certainly at the time was that he wanted to revisit this music that uh, she loved so mm. and we got an invitation to go to the to the album launch for this thing but the only problem was it was while I was on air it, it coincided with the show I was doing at the time which was an evening show so we I was so desperate to just go to this party where I would party where I'd be in the same room as Paul McCartney without telling anybody. We put the middle hour of the show on tape and then decided to sneak out, <laughs> just leaving this tape going yeah. around. And and we went to this party And then nine was... eleven happened. <laughs> <laughs> and and 
I, I went in and as I entered this party, some I bumped into somebody I knew and they started talking to me. The, my, my co-host and producer were, had gone on ahead and I could see in the distance that somebody had introduced them to Paul McCartney. And I just thought that was it. That was my chance. I, I, they're, they're talking to him. I'm not. So I sort of very rudely bolted past this friend of mine, bolted into that group just as Paul was leaving. And then, like an idiot, grabbed his hand and went, yeah, it was nice to meet you, even though I just sort of turned up <laughs> breathlessly. And I thought that was going to be it. And then a couple of days later, we got the call saying, would you like to have Paul on the show? Um which was how it ended. It always ended up being like that. There was never very much notice in any of the interviews that I did. And I did quite a lot over the years, maybe 15 or 16, something like that. Wow. And it was often the day before, sometimes the day of, can you get yourself around to Paul's office in Soho Square? And being a fan, mm. you know, I knew about the MPL offices and I'd walk past and, you know. Yeah. I always slow my pace when I walk past. Just in that. case. <laughs> just yeah. in case I see him yeah. pop out. Yeah. Um. And we got, we got shown to that office you will have seen in his interviews and um you know the jukebox in there and all the paintings and some great linda photography on the walls i think the one from the sergeant pepper photo is is uh from sergeant pepper party is up there and we're just sat and then we hear him coming and he's durdering to himself and that's weird because not only is paul mccartney approaching but paul mccartney is approaching and singing and it was just <laughs> <No>. <laughs> great and he was so Lovely with us. I don't remember much about it. I remember one of the questions I asked is like, what's best, the the first note of A Hard Day's Night or the last note of She Loves You? <laughs> so what, what do you think he said? Um, I mean, I personally, because it's a sting on this uh, podcast, we'll go for The Hard Day's Night. Yeah, that's what that's what he went for, <laughs> rather than the, uh, the, the jazzy chord that they thought they'd invented with the harmonies at the end. Yeah. But he was he was just great and then you know over the years whenever there was something new like say we we we'd get the call or I'd I'd get the call when I then went to do a solo radio show um cuz that's to... because of the relationship that you had with him or is that just Yeah well you know he he for for whatever reason he enjoyed it and it's funny because like nobody is more up well, I mean, some some people are, but yeah, there are a few people as obsessive about the Beatles as I am, and and there are few people as in awe of Paul McCartney uh, as as mm. a talent and as a human being. But you know, I always felt I've got to keep him engaged, and I've got to see if I can stop him from saying what he's going to say in every other interview. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because that's that's another thing that he does, and it's it's clever. Again, it's about you know that thing of holding himself back that we talked about before. I think that's part of it. So he has a good story that that line Lennon had about him being a great PR man. He he always <laughs> has the angle to tell you about the album, and he also has the knack. And I've seen it happen to loads of interviews and interviewers, and I've sometimes fallen foul of it. Where when he's telling you, you feel like you're the only person to hear this thing. Mm. Been, you know, with McCartney <laughs> 3, it got to a point where somebody said, oh, did you have Paul McCartney on such and such a show or did you see such and such? And I'd, I'd text back saying, oh, yeah, did his, um, was, was his daughter Mary staying with him and would he go off to the studio and then come back and uh, yeah. play what he'd done that day while she yeah. cooked? And people had text back saying, oh, my God, have you heard it already? I said, no, that's just what he's saying in yeah. every interview. So it doesn't sort of feel like he's on autopilot. He's, you, you still, he feels very engaged. What so. he seems to like is a bit 
of irreverence. Not not too much, mm, but yeah. a bit of irreverence. And actually, it's so often the case as an interviewer anyway, if you ask people almost quite quite dull questions about their everyday life, mm. it's more mm. illuminating than asking them about a record, and especially with somebody like Paul who's got his stuff that he wants to say about the record or he's got his prepared so he knows he can give a good interview. Just yeah, knowing that he watches Would I Lie to You is, is yeah. more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Than, yeah. yeah, I'd rather hear one story about Homes Under the Hammer than B7 yeah. on the bus yeah. for the 10 millionth time. Yeah, and it's it's getting those kind of details out of him, which I think he enjoys anyway, because I think if, if you... If you can catch him right, that he feels that's more like an authentic conversation anyway, perhaps. Did either mm. of you watch it wasn't very long, but I thought it was great, it was the Chris Rock one he did ahead of some video YouTube premiere for McCartney Three, and it was just the two of them talking. Um ah. it was funny because Paul was on a on a Zoom and he was far less um put together, as it were, than yeah. he, he has been on, say, the address. Elba interview or some of the other ones we've seen but I th I think it can be really good watching him talk to somebody that he feels uh is is similar to him status wise mm. which in a way yeah. nobody is because he's Paul McCartney um but I think he's quite in awe of comedians yeah um mm. and he's, he's really good if you ever hear him on Howard Stern as well you know um yeah Howard Stern over the years has, has morphed into... I mean, he was always a good interviewer, but that's not what you necessarily thought of him as. But he's he's morphed into this celebrity interviewer who I think is is without peer. Um, and, you know, Paul goes on that show quite often. And you do get well-trod anecdotes, but you also see this different side of him because I, th I think... Uh, there is a way that he, he can relate to people at his level that is different to dealing with, you know, a, a, a somewhat nervous fan, even yeah. if that somewhat nervous <laughs> fan is a very accomplished you know, broadcaster yeah. or actor or musician or whatever. I think there's that thing sometimes he does. There was an interview, maybe it was Mojo or Uncut or something. And I think sometimes with the big musos, he can be quite deflating like I think yeah. someone was that wanted to know something about we you know because of Blackbird and Mother Nature's Son were you listening to a lot of the English folk that was going round and he was just like no no not at all <laughs> you know just very kind of <laughs> yeah you know bringing yeah. you back down to earth you know yeah. you want this to be true that he was kind of hanging out with Bert Yanch or something <laughs> yeah, it yeah just yeah, wasn't yeah. you know yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I think he seems to have a similar thing when he gets asked about anything in uh, Revolution the Head where. He just doesn't really, if it countenance, it's just like, no, that that didn't happen. What didn't happen like that? <laughs> you know, yeah. if you put, yeah. put words in his mouth, he doesn't seem to have any sort of time for it whatsoever. No, yeah. not not at all. Not at all, actually. I also think, you know, I, I love how he is. Uh, I think in a way he hides it, but I think every band has a member who is the fan of the band mm. and i think in the beatles it's paul and of course you see that in what he you know did for them and how he drove them in the second half of the career but i i do think the story of it is important to him uh, i th i think he is is too savvy or too modest to talk about it that much and he's also very careful 
not to even though it's inevitable to to live off the glories of, of the Beatles, because how couldn't you? But he's very careful not to be Mr. Retro Paul. I'll talk about mm. anything to do with the 60s. He's, he's he's very, you know, his strategy and the people he works with are, are brilliant in terms of how they position him. He's always got a new thing and a new project. And um, it, he's not just somebody who you wheel out to talk about reissues. Yeah. That yeah. thing is is when he does his more most interesting work as well as when he's working with people on a similar status, if not like higher status. Which is it when I think when you read about the way that um, Nigel Godrich was with, was with him in the studio when they made Chaos and Creation, is that they actually locked horns quite a bit, and I don't, Nigel, mm. Nigel Godrich didn't really take much shit from him and told him when things were awful and. I think that sort of not being surrounded by sycophants really made makes him sort of up his game a bit. Yeah, it must be just so boring for him going on sort of Jimmy Fallon or something. Yeah, and and is there anything worse than seeing those American talk show hosts do impersonations of him? Of of any Beatle in general, I just find yeah absolutely the, the way that Paul is able to to grin and bear that. I think you know that that is a, a great reflection on him as well. The fact that he can be good humoured in fa- in the face of Jimmy Fallon's impersonations. Yeah, that's up there with Hey Jude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm so interested in the dynamics of the band and the relation, the the interband relationships, and what held it together, and and why it came apart, and then you know what what continued throughout the 70s and and beyond. You know, especially in the case of George and Paul, and when I think about which one of you? One of you's reading Tune In at the moment, the extended edition. Yeah, I've just uh, started. Yeah. Well, I'm about sort of hundred pages in. Yeah, yeah. that it's all there. It's it's all in that dynamic between mm, yeah. John and Paul and George. This cool older kid who's a force of nature, who in some ways, against his better judgment, when being cool and rebellious, lets this younger kid into his band but because he can see it's such a smart thing to do but Paul knows how talented he is as well so he's there on merit and then Paul doing George the favour of letting him audition for John 
and then John making that same compromise again, letting this young boy, this child really, into his van. Think what the difference is between a 16-year-old and a 13-year-old or, or whatever it was, mm. and just yeah, how much that dynamic underpins everything that happens subsequently. Mm. Um, and And actually the reason that in some ways Ringo was the most popular Beatle in the Beatles is because he didn't bring that baggage mm. to it. He just came in after they'd lived those years of that around Liverpool and Hamburg. That that power dynamic is really interesting yeah. to me and especially the way it plays out with Paul and George throughout the 80s and, and 90s. Yeah. I think as well, when you listen to... Sergeant Pepper, I think that's the one where you can hear them getting on. Like, that's the peak of them getting on, in a way. <laughs> like, yeah, I think part I of the magic of Pepper is the fact that Lennon is doing stuff like Mr. Kite, which is stuff he would definitely move away from. Although, he, you know, he was always quite fond of that song, I think. But, yeah. like... You know, he, that was definitely a direction he'd move away. So it was like, the, the re I think sometimes the reason that that kind of indefinable magic of what's really good about Sgt. Pepper is the fact that they were they were really socially bonded at that point somehow. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I think <laughs> I so. I think to, almost to a sort of, to the extreme, in the, there wasn't there around that period where they just couldn't deal with not being with each other and mm. they would sort of rent out a massive mansion and end up all sitting in the same room You're for thinking of help. the whole weekend. Is that oh, no. that period? <laughs> No, no, I meant the film help. Because I remember it's sort of later than you think when they're just sort of, they're so inseparable, but not in, in a kind of sort of codependent way that mm. isn't necessarily yeah. that healthy. Yeah, I, I um, guess I, I have that, the, the peak of that down being slightly earlier. I kind of think of that as being Rubber Soul Revolver, but mm. I think you're right, because if you think about 67... And them all, for they, they, you know, one of them couldn't become interested in meditation. Yeah. You know, one finds out about it and then all of them have to go to Bangor and yeah. all of them have to go to India. And there's that famous Mick Jagger quote about them being like a four-headed monster. Mm. And it, the, what, what being the only people who knew what it felt like did to the bonds between them is... I mean, it's 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 unknowable, but I think you know, that that when when you talk about that, I think being stuck in the middle of that hurricane then meant when they weren't touring anymore, it it just felt like that's how they had to move through the world mm -hmm. to some extent. Mm. And then you hear Paul talk about the peer pressure, for example, around taking acid. Um, well, you know, one of us has done it, so we all have to do it and yeah. he's got his doubts um I, th I, th I think you're right and it is after that um and you know especially as as john um becomes infatuated with and gets to know yoko ono but also like a little bit more a little bit before that with when he's off filming how i won the war yeah. it's starting you know that that period kind of 66 67 that yeah. there is a bit of them dipping the toe in the waters of doing the, the doing their own thing yeah and i mean and certainly yeah i mean thinking about what i just said i mean on revolver you can start to see some fractures maybe but i just think it, on sergeant pepper john's really prepared to play the game you know yes. with mr kite and 
with maybe Good Morning or so. You know, it's he's yeah. prepared to be daft. I mean, he's, he's yeah. always daft. I don't, know, I don't know what I'm trying to he's say. He's a bit removed <laughs> from the kind of the process. Of, I think there was a lot of the, uh, him sort of stepping back and letting Paul sort of create his vision. Yeah. Part of I it, because he was so fucked on acid that he wasn't sort of capable mm. of running the show. So it is kind of the changing of the guard a lot, that record, yeah. isn't it? Which, which is why I find it interesting that you say you go from like Plastic Ono Band and then getting into Sgt. Pepper is that yeah. like, that's the most sort of removed sort of abstract John stuff, you know, better Mr. Kite and um, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. I mean, it's 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 a million miles away from bearing your soul yeah. on the acetate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's difficult to pin down what they thought of Sgt. Pepper yeah. um, in a certain way, especially John, who sometimes when you read those 70s interviews you get the impression he thinks it's a, a sort of overproduced horror show and yet in how do you sleep there is the suggestion that he was the one who knew that the leap forward was sergeant pepper and paul mm. was surprised by it even though paul was the the driver of it in this way and then the kind of tearing it up in essence when they recorded the white album and going the other way it's mm. it's it's Difficult to know, but just having interviewed interviewed musicians a lot over the years, I think you know the point at which an album has come out and the the year or two after that is it's very difficult for musicians to have perspective on their own work because they've heard it nonstop. They you know can't get any perspective on it in their heads. They've already moved on to the next thing and maybe feel slightly embarrassed by it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think over the years, um, and, and again, it comes back to that thing of Paul being the, the big Beatles fan in, in the Beatles. I think Paul has has loved that album and was involved like, in the 25th anniversary celebrations. As I think, you know, the others might have been, George and Ringo, I can't remember the South Bank show special. But, but anyway, like I feel that all of them apart from Paul have to different degrees been disparaging about it mm. um but also have recognized just what a moment it was mm. uh, and how mm. important it, it it felt in terms of the leap forward at the time yeah i think it took a long time for that dust to settle and the sort of reappraisal of that record because when i remember growing up that that was the masterpiece was yeah. with Sergeant Pepper, whereas now that's sort of quite a. I don't know whether it's like an old-fashioned opinion or it's just an unfashionable opinion. But now, like you know, you never really meet anyone whose favorite Beatles record is Sergeant Pepper. It seems to be that Revolver or Abbey Road. Now, yeah, I think that say, that but... changed. I think that started to shift a little bit with the reissue. Mm. Um, yeah, I think. Yeah, they've done an amazing job of these these reissues. And I think the Sergeant Pepper one, it did feel as if we'd gone through this long period of it, it being almost uncool to say, oh, Sergeant Pepper's a, a great album and more to you know, just talk about the artifice of it. I think I think, you know, when when people were given the chance to reappraise it, and especially actually, I mean it's funny, the the Ringo's parts and Paul's parts, you know, the drums and the bass, uh, which sound incredible on those 
remasters yeah and it does yeah, beg the question is that because the surviving members of the beatles just said can you turn me up a bit yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. but i think i think that has shifted i know what you're talking about but i think it's it's shifted a little bit although mm. i do agree i think you'd you'd be hard pushed to find somebody who'd stick the neck out and say oh no no it's it's sergeant pepper for me mm. even though well, i think there's me I, I, yeah, that's I, me <laughs> I, but I think it, i think it's i think it's a really valid opinion to have I mean, you're always biased by the ones that first sort of blow your mind. Yeah. And yeah. I got into Revolver a little bit later in my sort of, I was probably 17, 18 before I got into Revolver. But, but I always saw Revolver and Rubber Soul as sort of two sides of the same coin in the interim between Mop Top Pop, pop Group Beatles and the phenomenal musical genius Beatles or whatever. That was the narrative that I sort of had in my head from the records that I had access to and stuff. So never it would have occurred to me that uh, anyone would think Revolver is the de facto best Beatle record <laughs> until Mojo came out. Yeah, but you, you were saying, you know, during that 90s Britpop period where you, you got into the Beatles, that, that was very much the thing. All the enemy sort of Melody Makers sounds at the time, if they did the greatest album of all time, it was always Revolver. That that mm. was that that was the one. I like the bit in Anthology, the documentary, where George can't remember which songs are on Rubber Soul yeah. and which ones are on <laughs> yeah. Revolver. It yeah. all kind of blurs into mm. one for it's him. Like, and I, but I, th yeah. I think, yeah, just in what were you saying before about them as a, a unit, for, for me... Like the the peak of them functioning as a unit, I think is is Rubber Soul. Mm. That's when it it seems to be the perfect blend of tightness and all pulling in the straight same direction. And you know, it at least the studio side of it being fun. But what's yeah. funny is you look at the recording date. You know, the dates for that album, and they were scrabbling to get enough tracks to fill fill a record. Yeah, for a Christmas and, record. Yeah, the and they, 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 they taped that instrumental 12-bar thing yeah. just in case <laughs> they couldn't finish the album and they needed something to fill it out, yeah. which is astonishing because <laughs> here we are thinking about Rubber Soul, one of you know, the, the greatest albums of, of the greatest band, and they, they were scrabbling to make up the numbers of tracks. Mm. Do you have a favourite then, if you had to pick? Favourite period? Yeah, I, I, I just love it all and it shifts so much. I think, implausible though it might be, if to save the human race, uh, only one Beatles record could survive, maybe it'd be Abbey Road. But I mm. just, you know, there's just so much to love mm. in all of them, really. piano a bit don't you yeah not really um you know not not really I, I, have, you, have you ever kind of just got into the beatles from that more musical perspective or to kind of worked out songs and kind of yeah but i'm honestly like i'm really ham-fisted and right. i learn <laughs> things from watching youtube videos yeah, and yeah. i can only look mm. at the i can't play guitar but i i can't read the the music so i look at the guitar chords and then figure try and guess what I should yeah. be doing with my fingers to work out where the, the melody is and, and you know, fill it out with chord notes. I don't I don't know what I'm doing really right. mm. yeah. in that okay. respect. Yeah. But yeah. I do like, you know, I loved when um rock band came out mm. and somebody 
you know, did a jailbreak on on the multi tracks, and then right, you could yeah. get those stems. I think they call them now, and, and put them into yeah, a yeah. computer program, and then isolate the different things. Like, I'm obsessed, obsessed with the Beatles harmonies, even though I'm not a, a, I'm a terrible singer. You know, I love karaoke, but I'm a terrible singer. <laughs> but I will sit for. My wife um, goes on TV because of her job sometimes, and a while ago, somebody had come round to do her hair and makeup. And I heard this woman in the kitchen say to my wife, oh, does your husband work in the music industry? And she said, no, he doesn't. No, this is just something he does. <laughs> and and it's so much part of my life that if I just am doing nothing, I'm on YouTube watching that. I think he's an Italian fella who teaches you how to sing the Beatles harmonies. <laughs> really? I was sort of sitting down there in a rabbit hole of yeah. listening listening to them and I, I love it you know yeah. on on bootlegs or isolated tracks just you know the the, the there's a the, the penny lane the on the sergeant pepper's uh, reissue there's an a cappella take or, or just a vocal takes i should say just mm. a vocal track of, of penny lane and you can hear them kind of figuring out harmonies which yeah. are then discarded mm. um or or just I, I will sit and listen to the to the hand claps and the bits of conversation I, f I find it so thrilling what is there yeah. on the what is there on the tapes yeah yeah definitely especially the sort of sun king and because and yeah it's their it's their sort of three-part close harmony but yeah. also the sense that it was it wasn't coming from a theory background mm. it was about like oh you do this you do this and just trying it out and you know it was yeah i've always wondered how they complicated things how they do it and how you sort of I mean, because or, I think weirdly, I don't know this if this is a sort of um, revolution in the head thing that was just made up. But isn't John Lennon said it was Moonlight Sonata backwards or something like that? Yeah, I think that's the yeah. Um, yeah. But <laughs> having tried to go back to the piano and look at that the other day, that, there's no way that that's true. <laughs> no, but, but there's there's not, not, you know, it's not no. anywhere near it. But 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 they were magpies. So John, yeah. uh, th the story goes that he'd heard Yoko playing that on piano because she's this classically trained pianist and i think being as, as john said about my sweet lord i mean his opinion was george had ripped it off and he just hadn't mm. done a good enough job of covering <laughs> the tracks uh, covering his tracks and i think mm. the beatles would do would would find inspiration you know and and then cover the tracks really well yeah that bobby yeah. parker song um watch your step have you heard that one it's no i don't it's it's a great record, and it was on John Lennon and George Harrison's jukeboxes. And oh, you listen yeah. to it, and you can sort of hear whatever's going on with the guitar riff in stuff like "I Feel Fine," "Paperback Writer," um, "Day Tripper." It's it's in a way, it's just variations yeah. of this record. They were real, really clever. There was that great program stuff. a few years ago about John's jukebox, wasn't there? Was it? Was yeah, that, um, yeah, yeah. And I think there was maybe a, a radio program on on George's jukebox as well. And there's somebody yeah. who's made a Spotify playlist right. of all the stuff that's in there. And and that you know that is fascinating to me as well because yeah. I just think the reason the Beatles or the reason I mean there, there are so many, but our reason that the Beatles exist at this different level in terms of their body of work than all their contemporaries even though the, the contemporaries are like the stones for example are responsible for some of the greatest records ever made is that there was this there was a coolness to them and they loved their rock and roll but there was also 
sort of this uncoolness mm. to them. Um, not just, you know, Paul, dad's got uh, some old sheet music on his piano or played in a jazz band, but just this scrabbling to fill yeah. a set or, you know, listening to um, I'm Wishing from Snow White and then thinking... Oh, we could we could rip that off somehow. They mm. weren't mm. just plundering rock and roll no. or rhythm and blues records. They were plundering everything, and it yeah. made them just so much broader as 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 a band and what they did musically than their contemporaries. We were talking about this kind of before um, we you popped on. We started recording, but we were talking about how sort of Paul, through kind of osmosis, just picks up on very sort of. A lot of very sort of baroque techniques. So he, from the sort of baroque kind of classical sort of first Viennese school of, as you would learn it in if you did a music degree. Right. He he just picks these little things out, whether it's a sort of Alberti bass in his left hand or the way that he fuses sort of contrapuntal, barky kind of fugal melodies. <laughs> but he obviously doesn't know what any of that stuff is. But he's yeah. just had this incredible... Uh, ability to sort of pluck it out of the ether. That's what I'm, I'm. I find this really interesting because we were talking about the vocal harmonies, and with vocal harmonies, yeah, you can. You don't need to know music theory. To, you can say this sounds nice. Let's do this, and you can create, like you know, because or or something like that. Very intricate harmony. But what I don't, I think this would be a really interesting book. Is how did the Beatles learn guitar chords? <laughs> I mean, you could start with the obvious story about getting the bus, etc. Yeah, yeah. To learn B seven, but the, but by the time, literally, where were they learning the chords? Like complicated chords, yes. augmented chords, diminished mm. chords, minor yeah. sevenths and six. I mean, did the, how did you learn the guitar in the sixties? There must have been a b- big book of chords. I don't yeah, know, I but... don't know because it's not like you could, you know, they they would talk about you know, seeing people play guitar on screen and watching their fingers to check they yeah, were really playing, yeah. but it's not like now where you could pause a performance yeah. uh, on a YouTube video or or even, you know, back 20 or 30 years ago you you'd really see a, enough on TV to be able to decode it. That's quite an interesting question. That's got to be just ear though because you they are growing up in the 50s where you know, it's not all rock and roll. It's not, mm. you know, most people are listening to sort of Ted Heath's big band and Duke Ellington yeah. and um, swing music and kind of jazzy chords. So yeah, most of it, I imagine, you know, those kind of jazzy ninths and augmented chords that and diminished sevenths especially. Yeah, like, but I think there's a really interesting thing to think about by obviously at the time of the White Album when Lennon and McCartney were writing separately. There, were, I think they were really interesting points where say like i mean i was just thinking about this earlier but then cry baby cry is a lovely descending line which is like e minor e minor major seven this is really dull sorry <laughs> e minor seven e minor six and it's just going down chromatically and that's really like mccartney so it's like i wonder if mccartney showed him that chord you know because eleanor rigby's got this descending thing and that's amazing to me that they they got good on piano you know that that they became accomplished paul became accomplished enough on piano to knock out 
Lady Madonna. Yes, yeah, which is amazing. Yeah, and it's really interesting that, isn't it? Because at what point um, do those chords start to become more complicated? Is Is it when they're in London and there is a scene and they're knocking about with people and they'd be mm. kind of figure. I think sort of figuring out that competitiveness, figuring out what other people are doing is part of it. I also yeah. think, you know, that they, they, they were just curious people, Paul, mm. incredibly yeah. curious. So I think you know, Paul would have asked George Martin a yes, lot yeah. of, yeah. A I think lot yeah, of yeah. questions. Martin, I think yeah. Paul would have asked uh, Jane Asher's mum a lot of questions. Isn't there some famous story that paul wants to find out about the you know the anti what's going on in vietnam so he just finds out um but, but, but Russell's a, yeah this yeah, is in the yeah, buxton but, podcast yeah, yeah just uh, and he, he just turns up there yeah um so i i just think that they, they were like sponges weren't they yeah i think john lennon isn't there a story john lennon George Martin had to explain that different brass instruments are in different keys or something. Do you, right, do you know yeah, story? yeah, yeah. And, and with the harmonies, I mean, even as late as something like Because, George Martin was working out, I think, though, that, that level, that nine-part harmony, George yeah. Martin was working that out. But I think some of the other stuff that you're talking about, when you're saying, how did they do it? It was just intuitive. It was like yeah. what they call um, sibling harmony. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's I think true. That's a, yeah. I think that's sort of... That uh, that um, unbelievable thirst for the B seven on the bus is something, yeah. just something that never left, and yeah. it just became more and more complex. And he wanted to, you know, explore more and more sort of mad. But that's one of the well, that's one of the great things we can learn from them. I think mm. you know to to apply to your life, they 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 didn't find a sound and then think, oh, this this is a sound we're going to stick with. Pretty much everything was ripping up the thing that came before it. Yeah, like yeah. they were always thinking, okay, we've done that. What's next? And mm. and and I love that. And I think that, presumably, in terms of the the technical skills you're talking about and the the craft of the the music, presumably that's coming from the same place. Yeah, uh, we've yeah. we've used that B seven now. Yeah, like, what what else <laughs> is out there? That's like yeah. To go back to Cry Baby Cry. Um... Do you know the Isha demo of Cry Baby yeah. Cry? Mm. Where it's like, um, in the coda, it turns into a waltz. She's old enough to know better to cry, baby, cry, cry, baby, cry. Make your mother sigh. She's old enough to know better to cry, baby, cry, baby, cry. And it's like, how complicated do you want to make this? This is ridiculous. You know? It's like that you said that Ian McDonald quote about Lennon sometimes being crabbed, like he's trying to cram too much stuff in his writing being crabbed. You know, mm, yeah. And that's yeah. it's, it's interesting. Like Lennon would seem to be obsessed with that over complexity sometimes, but then that's yeah. weird yeah. because that seems very contrary to the kind of mother kind of simplicity rawness directness yeah but isn't you know isn't isn't that just part of what we love about him and yeah and i I think this thing i've heard mark lewison talk about how this idea that john said one thing one day and then a completely different thing another is slightly Mm -hmm. overplayed Mm. but um there's there's an impatience there's a there's a restlessness yeah yeah to him i think which is 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 kind of what what's behind that perhaps that's it in a nutshell, isn't it? Is that that sort of artistic hunger and restlessness is the story of how they achieved so much more. 
why the Beatles are the Beatles. Like that's the one defining thing, really, isn't it? Yeah, but... and also again to come back to that dynamic of the the the, the three of them, George, Paul, and and John. I think whatever the dysfunction was that that lay in that being these, you know, because they they were tough. If you think about what life was like in Hamburg or what life was like around some of those halls in Liverpool where the fights break out and stories about John uh, mm. and, and violence, they, they were all tough in a way that you, that, that, that Brian Epstein maybe sort of smoothed off the rough edges a little bit. But, but the, there's a kind of macho toughness, which... Mm. I think in terms of their dynamic, the the three of them, and more Len McCartney than anything, you couldn't bring something crap in. Mm. You couldn't bring something embarrassing in. Yeah. Because <laughs> you, you'd, I don't think they would ever... You know, I think Paul said in some interview that John only ever complimented him once. But um, maybe about here, there and everywhere, I forget. I'm not sure that's right. But But I don't think they were emotionally functional in a in a nurturing way but i think they were emotionally dysfunctional in a way yeah. that you couldn't bring shit in because it yeah. was it was too embarrassing and there would always be something waiting in the wings presumably as well yeah. if your if your track wasn't up to scratch yeah <laughs> i'll just uh, finish off by asking you our stock question which is what's your controversial Beatles opinion I don't even know it's that, that controversial but I mean the, the 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 one song that would go on the bonfire for me is Piggies I really right. hate yeah. it I really hate really? it I think it's such a it's, it's an overwrought piece of social commentary that thinks it's so much cleverer than it is right I just can't I find it really hard to deal with George's moany songs I think um, I I like d- for me it's really. more the, the Manson association makes it a bit of a grisly listen sometimes. Well, it makes yeah. it icky, but I think it's more, it's just, I mean, I have, you know, Taxman and a lot of his solo stuff that I have a similar problem with. It's just mm. so, it's just for someone who's so sort of enlightened, it's such a sort of glaring lack of perspective. We've, <laughs> barely, talked, like, we've barely talked about him. I mean, he, he's, he's so... Yeah fascinating the contrast between this very spiritual man who you listen to olivia and she talks about like dying well like being at a point where he could die well was his goal in life yeah and and all that and and all the sort of bitterness around um money and other people making Mm. money off them and holding grudges um and yet the sense that the people who loved him thought there was no better friend to have if you mm. ever read tom petty talking about george harrison or you know eric idol michael mm. palin the the love these people had for him and the, and the sense that he was so deeply kind and funny mm. he he just seems like such a bunch of contradictions yeah um but you know i i the in the great George Paul schism, um, I tend to tend to be on Team Paul. I think because mm. I think George. Yeah, I'm sure. And and there are you know there are things we know about uh, that if you were George Harrison or Ringo Starr in, in the 80s or Yoko, there are, there are ways in which Paul 
conducted themselves in terms of business, which certainly on the the face of it could really um, get you back up and obviously cause these huge arguments. But I, I just the, the snidiness, the 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 way in which George kind of after John's death took it upon himself to be the one who publicly sniped at Paul when mm. Paul yeah I, I think he could be a difficult person to be in a band in and I think for nobody more than George Harrison but I really think anytime you see Paul interacting with George he's just trying mm. he's he's on eggshells he's trying yeah. so hard um only for George to slap him down repeatedly <laughs> But I think you know. But I do think that you know they loved each other. You know, again, um, the, these are, are complicated relationships with very, very deep roots. Mm. I mean, it's hard enough now, sort of, you know, dealing with my group of mates from school. Is you know, <laughs> yeah. we have exactly yeah. the same things yeah. that really fucked yeah. us off yeah. in the fourth form. That, yeah, you know, it's just yeah. slightly and if you want to, yeah, if you're a Beatle, yeah. and if you want to understand the Beatles, that that's what you have to understand. Yeah, mm. I mean, I suppose it's like you know, I wake up in the night regretting something I said in 1995. And, you know, McCartney's yeah. like that would let it be, and so <laughs> he, so he does let it be naked. You know, that's uh, that's yeah. how you deal with those. Uh, you know, it must be like that on a grandiose scale. You know, and to isn't feel it, like, isn't it lovely? I think. And I think it's genuine. I think part of it is the thing we started off by talking about, the way that Paul will bring to any publicity round a, a story. And yeah. obviously the story he's lining up for Get Back is how refreshing it has been for him mm. to see that relationship in a different light and, and yeah. be able to make peace with the memory. But I, I don't think that's a, entirely a fabrication either i think as the fan of the beatles and and uh, in the band and as the one who perhaps is more concerned with the the legacy than the others i, I think paul is aware of the different narratives yeah that have yeah. emerged um to, because yeah we our own memories aren't reliable narrators mm. there's that thing that actually your memory is just a memory of the last time you had the memory mm. so it's like you know uh, a vhs tape every time you copy it gets worse and, and worse and worse <laughs> and I, I do think there's been something about both the ron howard film and the the peter jackson film which i'm so excited about mm. which has has given paul some peace or to be all american yeah. closure um mm with with memories that have been difficult for him yeah so that was the brilliant jeff lloyd thank you very much jeff for joining us really enjoyed that one yeah it was a great episode i realized listening back this thing i was talking about where i was trying to pin down something quite vague which is that i feel that sergeant pepper was the last time they really got on <laughs> yeah but i realized afterwards that obviously it's a kind of brian epstein thing isn't it you know that that, and I yeah. think you can. I think that is one of the things you can hear in Pepper is that just is the like, the innocence before that. I think you know, and I think mm. that's maybe the thing I was groping towards somewhat. Yeah. But yeah, no, mm. I think yeah, I would agree with that. Mm. Um, so yeah, some really great stuff. It's great to, to talk to him about interviewing Paul and all that stuff. Yeah, uh, obviously dealt with it a lot better than the, either <laughs> of us ever would. Yeah, but um, yeah, you can probably you find those Paul? interviews. Yeah, what would you ask Paul? I mean. Yeah. Um, well, 
I think about this probably twice a day, mm. um, and I'm still none the wiser. Okay. <laughs> um, I think, I mean, reading a lot of TuneIn, um, th- there are questions where, like, that would be a really good thing to ask. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I can never really... I would like to ask him about the um, the one that we talked about to Kevin Eldon, uh, mm. where they're do- just doing all those silly Liverpool voices and stuff. Oh, the quite interesting soul to know where they're from. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Been for a shit, have we, Megan? They'd probably be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't remember that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. What about you? Well, I don't know. Like, I think you'd either have to go broad or ridiculously specific, I think. I mean, one thing that I think about... Um, well, if there's this thing somewhere, I think it's in a hard day's right, where there's a hard which is, day's right. Yeah, the book which What's is like that? behind the. Let me just make sure I got the name right. Oh. Uh, right, uh, by Steve Turner book, which is behind every Beatles song. Uh, okay, I don't know that. Uh, and there's a bit in that where he talks about you know we all know the story behind Martha, my dear, which is mm. it's his sheepdog. But in that book, and I don't think it's really anywhere else, he says that Martha was actually like the name of his muse. And oh, so really? he named the sheepdog after his Right, muse. okay. I don't know. Like That, that would, would make more sense. Yeah. Because it's You've always compl- been my inspiration. Complicated, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Complicated relationship with a dog. <laughs> yeah. So I'd wonder, I'd like, that would be an interesting thing to ask him about, wouldn't it? Like, Yeah, that'd be brilliant. I'm having that if I see him before <laughs> you. <laughs> but also, I can't seem to find much else about that anywhere. I think he meant fine Paul. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, there um, we go. But I don't know. So, yeah. But I'd also want to just say, like, what's it like being Paul McCartney? Yeah. <laughs> you know, just go route thank one. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> probably, yeah, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, we'll be na- back next week with uh, a really great episode with the comedian Felicity Ward, which is really fun. Yeah. Uh, she's a, a brilliant comic, really, really funny, uh, in a show called Wakefield, which is out now in Australia, if that's where yeah. you happen to be. It's um, that, so that, we talked was, a bit, so I did a burp then, no, sorry. sorry. <laughs> yeah, um, I say... This was a really good chat, and it was definitely much more the one of the tangential ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but like, we, went, we ended up talking about cognitive behavioural therapy, didn't we? At one point, I think. we did. I mean, yeah, I think it ends with a cry for help. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but that was great. She was so funny and just really, yeah, it was, it was really cool. It was yeah, a great one, and um, lots of yeah, we do go quite off piste with other sort of great music stuff. But um, yeah, yeah, it's a it's a, it's a really fun one. Mm. I like how they're all completely different, and uh, yeah. this is probably you know one of our more sort of ones where we go around the houses but we'll uh, yeah it's really great i really enjoyed listening back to it mm. um so thank you so much for listening um please do rate the show if you enjoy it and you can follow us on all the old social media etc um and do sign up for the patreon um <laughs> if you would One. like to you yeah. don't have to don't have to um but yeah thanks for listening and we'll see you next week bye planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Your Own Personal Beatles is presented by Jack Pelling and Robin Allender. The podcast artwork is done by Morgan Ritchie. It's produced by me, Jack Pelling, and is a Homespun Sounds production.